Welcome to the FieldLink Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Smith. As we roll into 2024, there will be a lot of debating taking place in Washington, D.C. as lawmakers go back to work. In this episode, we sit down with Sean McCarty, Director of Government Affairs at Helena Agra, as he shares some valuable insight about the Farm Bill and the leading issues that are beginning to be debated with Congress in Washington. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. This episode of FieldLink is brought to you by Zypro. Zypro delivers protected, consistent enzymes into the soil to maximize fertilizer programs by utilizing VersaShield formulation technology. Contact your Helena representative to learn more about Zypro. And welcome back to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith. And joining us today is Sean McCarty. He is the uh, director of our government affairs group here in Collierville. And Sean and his team get to spend a lot of time, not just in Washington, but across the United States at several capitals and working with those lawmakers to help keep agriculture moving forward. And today, Sean, want to welcome you here. We've got a few things to talk about. Lots of things happening in D.C. It's kind of a crazy time, though. Yeah, uh, yeah. Bill, I appreciate the invite. Good to be with you again. It's uh, crazy is the new norm. Yeah, crazy, crazy. And, and you know, as we're kind of coming towards the tail end of 23, you know, there's been a lot of discussions uh, recently uh, around the farm bill. Of course, there's a big vote that took place recently. We're kind of in that stall mode right now, kicking the can down the road a little bit. Things are going to be delayed for about another year until September. Sean, break that down a little bit for us. Uh, what's going on with the farm bill and... You know, what does that mean to producers from your perspective? A whole lot has not really changed since the last time that we spoke. We knew that it was going to be difficult to get a farm bill passed on time by the, the September 30th deadline of this year. You know, some some moving pieces made it even more difficult with the removal of, uh, of House Speaker McCarthy. There's been disagreements over funding, which has taken up a lot of time. If you look at most of the spending packages from this year that were supposed to be approvals for 2024 spending, most of those have not been approved. So here we are, you know, mid-December, two and a half months into the federal fiscal 2024 year, and we still don't have approval levels for, for most programs. We have avoided a government shutdown, which is a good thing. I think most people would agree. But we've avoided that by these, these continuing resolutions that, like you said, just kick the can down the road a little bit. Here we are pushed into mid-January, you know, leaning towards February, and where it goes from there. There, there is a sentiment that we may have a, at least a partial shutdown in January if some of these approvals do not go through. So all of those things made it difficult to have a productive farm bill conversation. Even the ag spending, just approvals for funding USDA, those have all lagged behind. And so the farm bill really never moved. Uh, The the draft legislation, things that that usually you see come out a bit early and you can kind of gnaw on a little bit and see what you do here and maybe change up there. That doesn't mean that sound bites have not come out and and lawmakers have not pointed to things that they want to cut or they want to add. But it's really been at a stall. And so, as you said, it's been extended for a year until September 30th of 2024. Not to be a pessimist, but with 2024 being an election year and 
it's it's tough to, to take a stance on some issues. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a crazy time. Yes, we kicked it on a year. We've got funding for another year. There were a couple programs that were, you know, pretty important, specifically around the dairy side of things that, hey, we've got to get this done because, boy, you lose that payment. So that's, that's a big deal into the entire, you know, trickle-down side of the ag side. So, you know— Stretching this out a year was good, but now we're hitting that weird time. And there's, we're already getting all the noise, who's running for election, and we're hitting this stage where nobody really wants to commit. No, and, and in an election year, and we knew this, that if it ever got pushed into 24, there would be some unique challenges. Uh, when you get on the campaign trail and, and there are Democrats that are in districts that Trump had won, there are Republicans in districts that uh, Biden won, the, these little swing districts that could go either way and even states in some cases for some of these senators, it becomes very risky to take a stance on certain issues. And so you try to avoid that. But that means that, again, getting out there and and where your support lays on a farm bill topic, you're just a little more hesitant to publicly put your support behind something. And and even within the Republican Party, if you look at the Freedom Caucus, from a spending standpoint, government spending – is government spending. Right. Uh, we may all look at that and say, okay, well, they're talking about other programs, right? We, we see a lot about welfare and stuff like that. But you know, crop insurance and commodity support cro- programs are, are government spending. Government spending. So while yeah. we see it as, as food security and national security, there are those in the Republican Party that look at it and say, hey, look, we need to cut the spending regardless. And so there, there's an education that needs to happen within that party, uh, as well as the Democratic Party, to, to make sure that we understand how, how crucial these programs are. But when you're running for, for election, you make the wrong comment about one topic, and you could be out of a job. Yeah. Um, and so it, it does create uh, some unique difficulties moving into 2024. There, there's a lot of conversation that maybe we don't even get it passed by then. Right. It's possible that if you're Republicans, and this gets into the, the, the prognostication of it all, and anybody that tells you they know what's going to happen is full of it, but there's Republicans that believe that they can win back the Senate. Okay. There are Democrats that believe they're going to win control of the House. And we're split right now. And so if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat and you believe that you might win the majority in the other chamber and maintain yours— why would you offer up too much in a farm bill negotiation right. when you can just wait until the election's over and then you have full control? And the counter to that is, well, maybe we should split the, the farm side and the supplemental nutrition side apart. And that's a that's a real, real yeah, hairy you, one. You just went down a path I think a lot of folks don't always understand. When we talk the farm bill, what percentage of that is really – impacting agriculture versus some of the nutritional programs like SNAP? Yeah. I mean, if you look at 2008, the supplemental nutrition, so you know, commonly referred to as food stamps, right? 2008, that percentage of the farm bill was around 67%. Mm-hmm. So a large chunk of it, big, but still a third went to, to farm programs, right. commodity support, crop insurance, those types of things. The last version, which we're still operating under due to the extension, was, was the 2018 farm bill. I believe that number was somewhere around 75, 76%. Okay. So a big uptick in percentage and also the dollar spent. Yeah, that, that bill was, I think, at 960, 970 billion over 10 years. Looking at, at this new farm bill, looking at where the, the projections are, you know, we're pushing 1.5 trillion for this farm bill and the percentage breakdown to cover the folks that would need it you're close 84, 85% supplemental nutrition. Yeah. So while the percentage for ag 
goes down, the dollars are still the huge. Dollars are big, but, but yes. there but there's a there's a lot of scrutiny. Uh, there's scrutiny on the ag portion. There's scrutiny on the on the supplemental sure. nutrition. Uh, Senators Grassley from Iowa, Chip Roy from down in Texas. You know they've come out together and said we need to to really look at where these farm programs are going, and, and their concern is large farms. Right. Corporate farms, large farms, the idea that we need to protect the small family farm, the medium-sized farm. But you've got Republican lawmakers, ag state lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers that say, hey, yes, equity is important, but it's about risk. And so many of these larger farms have a lot of risk. Right. And so we don't want to necessarily take away from that because they may not be able to balance that risk. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's an ongoing conversation of, you know, where are we going to be able to cut if you want to cut spending – and then the idea of, of the wish list, you know, what, what types of things would we like to add to a farm bill renewal that might improve agriculture for everyone? Yeah, and I think that's a great point. You know, you hear a lot of chatter, obviously, uh, some of the things that they're talking about adding uh, will likely fall into the green area, energy and, and alternatives and conservation. Correct. Yep. It's a... Uh, you know, there's things that you look at sometimes and you think, okay, that makes sense. Sure. Right? Everybody's supportive of ag. Yeah. Everybody's supportive of food policy. Everybody eats. It gets lost sometimes, but everyone in the room supports farming. They just got different visions on how to get there. But there are some areas. Uh, we've talked about biostimulants in the past and the biosciences market. Right. What Helena is doing with the biosciences products and, and the ability to uh, improve yields and, and improve quality with the number of stresses that we have and, and when weather patterns do shift and we have to deal with, with drought that we're not used to right. or storms and hail or uh, the concern about marketabil- marketability, all those things, the biostimulant products allow us to solve those problems, but we've got to be mindful of, of what you're able to claim you're doing to avoid any sort of crossing of EPA uh, guidelines and, and label right. restrictions. Uh, so there's a movement to, to improve that within the farm bill. I think we talked last time about allowing CCAs and, and crop advisors to to become TSPs, uh, service providers, technical service providers under USDA's program to assist in nutrient management and, and allow more support in the field to assist farmers so they can get it done in a timely fashion. So there's a number of things that we look at and we go, gosh, that makes a lot of sense. That, right. sh- that should be agreeable to everybody. Yeah. But if it gets caught up and you're trying to trim a budget, Sometimes those things miss, and um, and it's unfortunate. Uh, so we're going to do our best in the meantime to to advocate for those as best we can. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, there's a lot of really it feels like sensible things that are right in front of us, but can get caught up in the drama of <laughs> making some of these decisions. But it's important to have folks like yourself there, you know, advocating for you know the greater good here in this case. Sean, let's talk a little bit about uh, some other things taking place on the Hill right now. EPA, uh, they got some things cooking in their house too. What what are some of the hot topics there that eh, they're kicking around there? Yeah, EPA, and again, we've we've been talking about this for a number of years. They went through a period there of continuous litigation, and it's still out there. Yep. But opposition groups found that going through certain courts was allowing them to have a, a significant impact on pesticides and their registrations and usability. EPA, to their fault, was not doing some of the consultations that they needed to do with regard to endangered species. And so they they made some changes. And we always knew that that was likely going to put some uses at risk as they reviewed these products. They recently unveiled their vulnerable species pilot project, 
which is specific to, I think, 27 different uh, animal species and where we would no longer be able to use many of the tools that we have okay. to protect those, quote, vulnerable species. They've also released their uh, herbicide strategy. And this impacts areas all over the country. Uh, there's, you know, I think 900 or so plant species. And then the animals that in some cases rely on that habitat, you have to hit a certain point threshold to be able to farm in those pesticide use limitation areas, these pulas. So they released their proposal to the world and we all looked at it and went, holy cow, how are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's so many changes that would need to be made to land. If you look at the Midwest and tile drainage, the creation of retention ponds on all these fields is just not something that would be doable, much less the costs. There's various crops that when you look at the limitations, it would, it would more or less amount to an all-out ban on many of the critical products that we use from a herbicide standpoint. So many challenges. Sure, opportunities, you know, again, when we have to reduce usage of products. Sure. Uh, it, it's where Helena shines bright. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a number of tools in the toolbox to, to be able to remedy some of those issues, but not all. Right. And so most ag groups, crop groups, agribusiness, farm groups all submitted comments to the EPA to say we – we understand why you're doing what you're doing because you've been challenged, and rightly so, to do these consultations on the front end to make sure that when you're registering these products that they're not putting something in, in jeopardy. That said, when you look at the maps of these endangered species, it's, it's the entire country. Right. And while a species is in one corner of a state and another corner and another corner, that does not mean that that species is everywhere there. And so uh, you know, reducing the usage or, or the ability to farm on that ground on all acres inside that area uh, is just not real-world uh, a viable process unless we want to move away from production ag. Yeah, it's it's really kind of great idea, but we got to step back and look at reality. And to your point, you know, if there's a an endangered species in this part of the state, it could be eight hours away, but it's still impacting that part of the geography. And, and, and think of the miss, the missed opportunities for growing crops, growing food to feed, feed a hungry nation and a hungry world. Yep. And, and we've got to, to, to be able to understand, you know, moving forward, there's an insecticide strategy that will come out as well. Mm -hmm. And so we always knew that there was going to be a change. Ag has, has always changed. We've always innovated and modernized. We've accepted some of the challenges. We've We've been apprehensive about some of the other ones, but change is constant. Sure. And and our job is to make sure that whatever changes are being made allow us to have the freedom to operate. That's what we're seeking. Nobody, you know, at the farm level, nobody's seeking to, to poison their ground or poison their water right. or kill, you know, essential species. That said, oftentimes, you know, you, you look and you say, okay, the people that are making these policies, do they have any real-world experience of understanding what it takes to actually farm, to put that food on the shelf. Yeah. Do they really know, uh, to your point, from seed in the ground to the harvest to, to processing, do they know all of the steps and all the people that actually touch that product to uh, yeah, hit the grocery store? Absolutely. Uh, Sean, tell us a little bit on the EPA side. So right now, the status on the herbicide piece, where is that setting at, right? It's under comment currently? So comment period closed. Okay. Um, so now they go kind of back to work. Okay. Uh, and they've heard, they, they've heard from, from all the groups, they know that changes need to be made. Mm -hmm. So that proposal likely in its, in its final version, whenever that goes in 2025, who knows, okay. 
will not necessarily look like it did when they released it. Sure. Uh, so now they, they, they go back and, and kind of figure out where they can make some changes, where they can tighten some things up. As we mentioned in the, in the beginning, the, the elephant in the room is... Mm, and, what happens? Well, and, and what happens if you have an administration change? Right. Uh, many of the folks at EPA are career officials, but you do have appointees leading those groups. You say a, a Republican comes in and wins in the presidential election. What does that do to the process? Uh, does it slow it up? Does it stop it? Do, do you reverse it? Mm. So there, there's that variable as well. So sure. they're going to go back to work as quickly as they can and try and get this done. Yeah, uh, policy is definitely driven by. Politics in some cases mm-hmm. like this, but uh, certainly these uh, comment periods are very, very critical. And the insecticide ones taking place currently or will be? Uh, it, it, it'll come out in the near future. Okay. So a lot of things happening in the EPA that's certainly going to impact growers over the next really couple of years, but could have long-term effect. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and finally, you know, the other area is back to PFOS. I think we chatted about this last time we were on what's taking place now. And let's, for some of our listeners that are just joining us, oh, talk to us about PFOS. What really is that all about? Yeah, it's you know, it's a topic that has grown um, in my first visits to uh, many of the state capitals and, and Capitol Hill in, in Washington. When we brought up PFOS, most folks had no idea what we were talking mm-hmm. about. There were those that were close to it. Oftentimes, if they were aware of some defense issues, because that's where it really kind of right. um, peaked. That had no idea what it was. And these are materials that are used in every industry under the sun, in in defense spending, in aerospace, in medical products, in furnitures, everywhere. And they are materials that assist in the integrity of products. They make things tougher. They make things uh, able to withstand the, the stresses in the environment and and protect things either from getting in or protect things from getting out. That said, the the downside, if you want to call it that, to that those properties are is that they hang around. And uh, research has been done into some of the hundreds, if not thousands, depending on how you define them, and that's another key key part. And said, hey, there are there are health issues associated with these materials where there's high concentrations. So EPA moved to identify a number of them, four or five of them, that are no longer in production but still in the environment looking at creating, uh, identifying them as hazardous substances, which would create Superfund sites and and remediation processes uh, where they are. But if you define them, depending on how you define them, uh, one fluorinated carbon atom, two long chain, it gets into the thousands. And so you bring in larger and larger groups. Fear is what drive things. And You've seen in Maine, uh, you've seen in Minnesota, both both of those states have passed bills and, and been signed, and they will have bans. Uh, at right now, they're, they're somewhat partial bans, but by 2030 and 2020, 2032, respectively, products with PFAS intentionally added will be banned. They will be banned from their state. And, uh, and so this is not an ag issue. This is, a, this is an everybody issue. We are not leading the fight there, but... We sell products that have a variety of active ingredients and innards in them. They are packaged, and they are packaged in containers that we need to make sure keep those products safe. And, you know, Helena's got facilities all across the country to serve our our agricultural and and specialty communities. And so whether it's real estate, whether it's packaging, whether it's the actual products, we have to be as vigilant as ever before to protect our interest there, not to— 
put anything unsafe in the market, right. but to show that we need to do the research and, and understand where these products are critical, whether all of these products cause adverse health conditions. Because if we're talking about thousands of them and we understand that there's five or six or 10, certainly we need to do everything we can to keep those out of the marketplace. Right. However, if there's ones that are critical to healthcare and aerospace and you know the safety of your children or, or farm production, is there a suitable alternative? Most recently, we saw a, a um, an announcement from EPA that instructed a manufacturer of packaging to cease production on their packaging for belief that they were creating PFAS materials. And while we may or may not argue that, the concern is, okay, if you get rid of this type of packaging, do we have another packaging alternative in the marketplace? That's safe. That That's safe. Right. And... Uh, no different than when we talk about banning pesticides, right? If you sure. want to ban an insecticide or a herbicide, we can go back and forth all day long. But the real question is, is there an alternative? Because if you model it out, what happens if there isn't an alternative? So from a packaging standpoint, if there is no alternative, then what? And that's when you start to see these these kind of blank yep. stares and folks not really thinking through and engaging with industry and engaging with the, the agricultural community to understand what does this do to agriculture? So uh, the good news is in visits to the Hill now, people know what we're talking about. Right. EPA knows what we're talking about. Hasn't made it any less difficult, but you're starting that conversation a little bit further down the road. You can get in the specifics a little more. And I think that's a really important point you talk about as far as just packaging, you know, certainly it's always easy to talk about product. We know product, our industry is very good, you know, as a whole, we're really good experts around product. But when we get into packaging, to your point earlier, if we don't have an alternative for that product to go in a certain package that's safe, how are we going to get that thing down the road to where it needs to go, the product there? Well, and you also have the additional moving parts of, uh, you know, many folks, and, and you mentioned some of the green initiatives earlier, but recycling uh, sure. is, is a huge piece of what folks are trying to do. Right. And while there's some, the marketability of recycled goods and, and where that, that stuff goes yep. is another conversation, there's a concern that, okay, well, if we do move into an alternative, does it ha have the same recyclability? Okay, if it doesn't, Mm -hmm. uh, does that change the view? So there's so many moving parts to moving into alternatives. Again, we used to package things in glass and right. steel, and, and we've looked at biodegradable you know, packaging that, that dissolves. I mean, we're not opposed to looking at alternatives, but what's the timeline on that, right? Is it, is it 12 months? Is it 36 months? What are the pros and cons? Having that conversation, and that's where uh, my group and, and all of our counterparts, uh, sure. you know, retail and, and, and manufacturing and the packaging companies, we all get together to engage those those folks in, in the EPA and, and at the state level to say, we're here. We're here for you. We're here to to give you as much information so that you can make the best decision possible. Are we always going to love it? No. But if we know that you've heard and you've heard our voice and you've heard our recommendations and maybe at least tweaked it a little bit, that's a small success. Right. Uh, if you don't, if you don't show up, if you don't engage, and things happen, uh, you have nobody but to blame but yourself. Yeah, shame on you. And I think that's one of the cool things about agriculture as a whole. Uh, you and your counterparts are right there, and f you know, for the most part, stacking hands, saying, "Guys, 
we're all in on doing the right thing, but let's go into this with our eyes wide open. Yep. We are a ag as a team. We can joke about, you know, you should you should buy from this company or that company. And when we step into that room, mm-hmm. we are all a team. We are all looking out for the interests of, of ag, ag, you know, professional products, uh, agricultural, you know, your farms and ranches, everybody. Sure. We're all on the team. And so when you see these these coalition groups come together, it's everybody supporting those tools. Nobody's worried about the the competitive side of it because we understand that if we are divided and we don't look out for Right. Our industry as a whole, we will fall by the wayside. And the idea that that we can move away from a, a production ag society while we look at that and say, no way. You know, I could introduce you to some folks in the manufacturing sector that thought, surely the United States will, will never go away from manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And there's other industries uh, sure. that, that, could, that could also jump up. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very real concern. The good news is... They are listening. They are taking meetings. They're, 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 they're willing to try to make sure that, that what policies and rules do come out makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it puts more pressure on us to provide solutions, not just walk in there and say, hey, we've got a problem with this. We've got to be armed with a solution. You know, Sean, uh, going to curve a little bit here now. Certainly a lot of big things happening currently in Washington. Are there some big state issues out there? We didn't get to really talk about this, but many state issues at the top of mind. Yeah, I mean, state to state, it, it does change. Uh, that, that PFAS issue has become a, a state issue. It's moving more rapidly at the state level. Uh, recycling is a big state issue. It is passing in more and more states uh, where they create their own uh, recycling-mandated programs. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you another one, and, and the industry is, is split on this one, is foreign investment. And, and I think we've, we've talked about this in the past with regard to, with regard to China, but there is a lot of attention on, on foreign ownership of agricultural land in the United States. Every state, it seemed like, had a bill this past year, and they're going to have a bill in 2024. And they vary. Uh, some of them are foreign ownership of any land in the United States. Mm-hmm. Some of them are what we'll call you know, to, to, to some adversarial countries, uh, whether that's China, Russia, sure. uh, North Iran, Korea, yeah, Iran. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's ownership of ag land by those countries. Some of it is, is somewhere in the, in the middle. Mm-hmm. And each state is coming at it from a, a slightly different angle, but it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. This is, this is red states, blue states, purple states. They're all looking okay. at it from a national security standpoint. Some of them are only concerned with it being near military installations or, or sites of national concern. And so we've seen the industry really try to be engaged there to say, look, we understand. We understand the scrutiny that needs to be had there, probably more scrutiny. However, there are repercussions. And when we look at trade, and some of the moving parts that are going on uh, right now yeah. in other countries with other countries trying to build alliances, not to necessarily, use, well, maybe you want to say usurp the United States, but certainly have a lot more leverage. Uh, we have to understand that, that when we make these decisions, uh, every, every action causes a reaction. And so what will that do? What will that do domestically in our markets here? What will that do in sure. markets abroad? How do we try and walk that line, understanding that we do need to protect intellectual property and, and national security and, and farm investment in the United States, but also do it 
knowing that we've got many friends out there, uh, many allies that, that rely heavily on our agricultural goods and help support our markets. It, it, it's an easy narrative to fall into and say, yeah, well, we don't need it. We don't, you know, need foreign investment around, you know, but it does dig deeper, and especially when you we get Jody Lawrence on here and we start talking about grain markets and what Brazil and other countries like that are doing, uh, Ukraine for that matter, how their products are impacting global markets, which is reducing U.S. demand, and then you throw this layer on top. And it just, I mean, if you look at the communities that we live in, right, right our rural communities— Unfortunately, manufacturing and other industries have left many of those communities. Sure, absolutely. We talked about that as changes were made from a policy standpoint. And, and oftentimes, and, and it doesn't happen everywhere, but you see a, a foreign auto manufacturing plant sure. or some big business come in and set up shop in a rural community, mm-hmm. right? There was tax advantages, uh, the, the rent or the land was cheaper, and it changes that area. Right, all of a sudden, it's a job creator for thousands sure. of good-paying jobs, and and economically, it gives a boost. And maybe you can bring back uh, the hospitals and the schools and revitalize some of those communities. Yep, that's right. But they may not be an American business. Yep. And so we have to understand that that's a that's a very tricky conversation. We mm-hmm. we know where both sides are coming from, and so really, it's just an ask to be thoughtful about the dialogue. To, to not have the knee-jerk reaction to see a balloon flying over the United States and go, certainly that's not a good thing. And, and we have a lot of questions about right. what certain countries are doing, but we're a leader in the world because we think things through mm-hmm. before we take action. Many other countries, it's emotional. They don't have what we have. And we see sometimes where they falter or you look at things and you go, boy, that's that's wild that that's happening. The U.S. is more thoughtful. Same issue here. We, we've got to be thoughtful about it and Make sure that we engage lawmakers on all sides of the of the table, at the state level, at the federal level, right, uh, right. to to understand what the implications would be if this type of movement moves forward uh, and goes too far. I guess mm-hmm. definitely. Well, definitely a lot going in, on in Washington as well as around the nation and all of our state capitals. Uh, well, Sean, I want to thank you for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink as we dive in a little bit more to some of the things taking place in the policy world. Bill, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of FieldLink. This episode was brought to you by Zypro. To learn more about Zypro, contact your Helena representative or check out HelenaAgra.com to learn more about Zypro.